I forgot what I was supposed to do up here. So I don't know who, how many of you got sick this week, but I got sick on Tuesday, really. I had to cancel all my busy appointments the rest of the week. And, uh, and I started feeling better yesterday, but my throat still... You know, when you don't speak for a while, you, 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 it, your voice doesn't uh, hold up as much. And, you know, so I'm, and I'm normally very timid and shy and quiet anyway. <laughs> so, well, let's get right at it, all right? First John, chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Wonderful passage of Scripture. Um, great truths uh, that we can revel in. Okay, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Stand together for the reading of God's Word. Behold, see how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our endures forever. Be seated. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for the word. We're thankful for the privilege we have and the, the joy of opening the scriptures and allowing the word of God to minister to our spirits, our hearts, our souls, our lives, our families, that we might... Rejoice in it, that we might praise you because of it, and that we might have life abundantly. We're thankful for this great passage of Scripture. Use it to, uh, to teach us, to encourage us, and to strengthen us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When John writes this letter, he's an old man. There's a church historian by the name of Eusebius, and he was a third century historian. He would write things down, and, and he knew John, and he gives us a story of John's ministry that's not in the Bible. According to Eusebius, John was an old man, and he had won a young man to Christ, and he was discipling him, and John was about to go on a long trip, so he went to the bishop of the town, and he said to the bishop, take care of this young man, and when I get back, I'll take up the discipling of him again. So he goes back, and he goes on his trip, and he comes back, and he comes to the bishop, he says, where's the young man? The bishop said, he's dead. He's dead. And he says, he's dead? What? He, what do you mean he's dead? He says, well, he's, he's dead to God. He's dead to God. He connected with his old friends, and he had gone back to his life of crime. Uh, now he's the leader of a band, and they're all up in the mountains, and uh, no one tries to get near them anymore, because if they go up there, they'll be killed. So he says, he's dead. He's dead to God. So John rips his cloak, he's, he's, he's in misery over this expression of grief, and he says, get me a horse. And John rides up the mountains where it's death to go. They grab him, they bring him to the leaders. One of the leaders is this young man who had gone there, who immediately recognizes him, and this is what Eusebius writes. He says, this young man, though armed, began to run. 
And the old guy, John, he begins to run after me, cries out, why are you running? Why are you running? I'm old. I'm unarmed. There's still hope for life in you. I'll gladly die for you as the Lord died for us. I'll give my life for you in exchange for yours. Stop. Stop running. Trust me. And Eusebius says, hearing these words, the man stopped He hurled away his weapons, and he fell down and wept. Now, if you knew a guy like John, you'd say, hey, where did he he get the guts to do this? Where did he get the confidence to go up into the mountain and the courage? John explains that in the first chapter. He just simply says in the first chapter, we have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with God. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We don't just know about Him. We have fellowship with Him. We walk with Him. We talk with Him. Years ago, I came across a poem by Wilbur Reese. Recently, I came across it again. And uh, I saw it first in a book by Chuck Swindell years ago, $3 worth of God. You've probably heard it, but I... I want to share it again this morning. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Old John, old John is just the opposite of this. He's all in. He's all in. The first chapters of 1 John show us how to know God by receiving the gospel having Christ come into our lives as our Savior, being born again and being adopted into his family. That's the first two chapters. And then suddenly in chapter 3, where we begin here, John catches fire. And he's instructing and he's teaching, and all of a sudden he begins to just get all excited. He begins to, to soar. You can't tell from the translation, but uh, chapter 3 and verse 1, John says, Behold, Behold, the King James says, behold, it's not in the newer translations, it's see how great the love is for the Father that he's lavished upon us. But the word behold is used over 1,200 times in the Bible. We talked about it some time ago, years ago, in the, in, in the, in the Psalms, behold, adah is the, is the word. It's a small word, but it means so much. It's, it's, it means you better stop and look at this, is what, behold it, you better look at this. Take time to, to, to stop. Take time to think about it. Take time to gaze at it. Wonder about this thing. Um, John says, behold, how great is the love of the Father that he's lavished on us. There's this, there's this outburst of, 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 of love. The subject of the outburst is truth. It's always truth. 
from the Word of God. He says, how great the love of the Father is lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. That's the truth that he's excited about. The first word we see there is this word lavished. It's an odd word. It's an odd word. It literally means to make a present, to bestow on someone. The King James says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath lavished upon us. Ordinarily, you know, Janine, I'd say, I love you. I love you. Or I'd say, you know, Brian, I love you. I love you. You, you don't usually say, you know, Debbie, I bestow my love on you. You know? I bestow my love on you. The only analogy that we have that compares to that is marriage today. Marriage. You love somebody, but at a certain point, you summon up all your love, and you stand before your friends and your family and some authority, and you bestow love on each other. You give your love to someone in such a way that it permeates and changes their life and your life, hopefully forever. There's a sense in which God loves all his creation, all people, but to be a Christian is not simply to have God love us in some general sense. There's a moment in which you cross a line and God actually brings his love to a certain point in your life. And it changes you forever. Forever. It revolutionizes you. And when God bestows his love on us, he calls us my children. He adopts us, the scripture says. As Jesus puts it in John 17, Father, in the prayer that he makes before he goes to Calvary, Father, I, I, I want you to love them as you love me. Wipe out their sins. Receive them and bring them into your family. So John can say, we're not just called children. That's what he says here. We are children of God. We are. We are children of God. We're actually children of God. And that's what he's excited about. God put his Holy Spirit in us, his DNA, if you will. We're born again. He gives us his divine nature, the family likeness. But what I think is so instructive here is not the truth of it, although it's true, the fact of it. Why does he suddenly go crazy? Behold, turn aside and look at this. You know, so excited, suddenly. What, what is that about? First of all, it shows us the way to know God. I'll try my best here. What, what, what does it mean to know God, to personally experience God? What's so wonderful is John doesn't just tell us to know God. In verse 1, he's knowing God in front of us. That's what's going on here. He's knowing God right before your eyes. You see it. He's talking about God, and all of a sudden, he's knowing him. Behold, he's all excited about this. He's saying, we're born again, we're brought into this family, and suddenly he says, behold, this is so great. He's lavished his love upon us. Knowing God is when the truth overflows the mind. It overflows the mind. You know, here's the truth. You say, okay, 
Okay, that's the truth. But all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you can't handle it anymore, and it gushes. It just fills you, permeates who you are, explodes in your mind and in your life, and you can't keep it in your mind anymore, and it flows out into your feelings. It flows out into every part of who you are. John doesn't just say, I know God has done this. He said, behold, behold, truth goes through his life like lightning goes through a lightning rod. And he says, behold, how great, how great is the love of the Father that he should call us his children. And we are, we are, we are, we are, we are. There's a movement here. Behold, you, you say, oh, 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 if this is true, if this is true, how can I be worried about this and this and this? How can I be angry about this? How can I be depressed about this? How can I be afraid of that? When you take in a truth, it might be a Bible passage, it might be a principle of faith. You've heard all your life, and all of a sudden, it becomes absolutely astonishing. Have you been there? It becomes absolutely mind-blowing. It moves from the mind to the heart. It moves from a detached truth to now it connects with everything in your life. It moves from knowing to beholding. You're gazing at it. You're thinking about it. It's permeating you. An example of this is in John 4. After her conversation with Jesus, the woman at the well, just beginning a whole new way of living. But none of the facts in her life have changed. You notice that? None of the facts in her life have changed. She's still living with a man who's not her husband. She still has been divorced five times. Her reputation is a disaster. Jesus often told people not to talk about their encounters with him, but he didn't tell her this. Her faith was only a few minutes old and already she's become an evangelist. The first evangelist since a woman. A woman. You find that in the Gospel of John because the Gospel of John is not uh, chronological, it's theological. Chronologically, you go to Matthew, Mark, Luke. Theologically, you go to the Gospel of John. There's a theology here that's being spoken of. She's having... In, in, in a moment of newness and the truth bursting upon her, she's having a, 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 a moment where she's having a huge influence on her community and the people around her. What she say? Not much. Huh? Huh? Come see a man who told me everything I've done. Everyone in town knows what she's done. These are small communities. What she says is underwhelming. But the fact that she publicly talks about her shameful past is overwhelming. Her words are few, but seemingly, and to those around her, insignificant. But her saying them publicly is very significant. In effect, she says, I know you know who I am. But I just met a person who liberated me from my past. 
for my reputation. I no longer am the person you think I am. I no longer am hostage. We just sang about that. I'm no longer a hostage to my bad choices. I'm free. Nothing has changed, but everything has changed. You see it? Her neighbors can hear it. Her neighbors see it in her eyes as she's speaking. Her words are all they need to run to this man that she's describing, and they flock out to see Jesus. And for reasons they don't understand, who this woman is now seems more relevant than who she was. Behold, I make all things new. Right? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? I make all things new. The implications for us are overwhelming. They're overwhelming. Those of us who desperately want to move on from our past, who have messed up and come to the end of our road, can start an unchanged life that we don't have to wait until we're mature. We don't have to move to a new town. We don't have to convince anyone. We simply start and we begin. We begin. We take the first bumbling, stumbling, teetering steps toward Jesus, and he runs to us. And we move toward Jesus even though we're not very good at it. And we don't know a whole lot. Spurgeon makes this observation. This is interesting to me. That even the discipline of God is not punitive. It's not punitive. Hebrews 12, 6 says, The Lord disciplines those he loves. It's not punitive. God is treating you as children. It's for your good. The things that he does are for your good. Yes, we feel the shame of things. It's not that we don't feel shameful. When we feel our sins, our failures in word and in deed, diminishing God's grace in our life and God's presence toward us, those sins and failures are in fact causing God's grace to surge toward us. Did you know that? Did you know that? Paul says it in Romans. We've studied it before. 520, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Why? Because God is rushing toward the sinner. God is rushing toward the sinner. Thomas Goodwin, the, the Puritan, points out that if you, and, and all of this, you can see, you read the book of Hosea. I mean, it'll just blow you away. It'll blow you away. It sweeps across the entire biblical history, and it causes us to, just to, to catch our breath about what this is stating to us. The sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. Think about that. Think about that. The dam breaks. It's not our loveliness that wins his love. It's our unloveliness. It's not our righteousness because our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. It's our unloveliness. Jesus runs toward our sin. I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. First responders, and we have some in the congregation, run to the fire. They run to the shootings. 
They run to the fire, the danger. Jesus is always moving towards sinners. Always moving towards sinners. And Luke 19 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Outside the church and inside the church. Inside the church. All of Paul's letters. Look at the letters of Paul. There's some nasty dudes out there in those churches. Letters of Paul. If you're sinful, he has mercies to satisfy and cleanse. He loves life into us. Think about it. He loves life into us. And today, he intercedes for you, Hebrews says. He's praying. He's in heaven before the Father, praying for you. You take Scripture seriously. When it speaks of us as the body of Christ, we're going to have communion, part of the body of Christ. You're the body of Christ. You know, Gary, you're the body of Christ. Bill, you're the body of Christ. You know, Jim, you're the body of Christ. Christ is the head, right? So we say Christ is the head. We are his body parts. We're the church, right? We're part of the body of Christ. How does the head feel about the body? How does my head feel about my own flesh? The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, in verse 29, he nourishes it and cherishes it. And then Paul makes the connection to Christ, just as Christ does the church. How do we care for a wounded part of the body? We nurse it, we bandage it, we protect it, we give it time to heal. For that body part, listen to me now, church, is not just my friend. You're not just my friends. It's a part of me. We're a part of him. And that makes you a part of me and me a part of you. We're together. We're together. This is why the risen Christ asked Paul, who's persecuting his church. He says, why are you persecuting me? What does that mean? What does that mean? Behold, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. He has lavished his love upon us. Jesus can redeem our past, no matter what kind of past we have, whether it's failure or mistakes, bad decisions, immaturity, horrible sins. Behold, what love, what love the Father has. And the way you know God is when the truth makes you go crazy. When the truth overflows into every other part of your life. One writer said this. Imagine a little boy walking with his father. The boy knows the father loves him. The boy knows that that's his dad. That's his father. And he's the son. And all of a sudden, the father picks up 
the little boy and hugs him and kisses him and whispers in his ear, I love you. I love you. And I will do anything. I'll die if necessary to give you what you need. And the boy weeps. What's going on there? Is he getting new information? Is he more a son than he was before? Does he know anything new? Not a thing. He doesn't get new information, but the information comes new. He experiences it differently, in a different way. Um, Mary was uh, having a bad night last night. She was, uh, when Mary goes to bed, she goes to bed. She's done. Boom, gone. It's a very nice night. And she just, when she goes, I mean, really, I've never seen anybody sleep like this. And it's been that way for a long time. Boom, down she goes. So about 2.30, she's running around, running around, running around. And she says, I can't, I can't get to sleep. Well, I haven't heard that in a long time. She's always asleep. I got to shake her to get her out of there. So she says, oh, I'm so, I, I, I just can't get to sleep. I can't. I said, well, What are you worried about? What are you thinking about? Nothing, not thinking about nothing. So I got up and I went around the bed and I, and I, I, <laughs> I looked at her. I said, Mary, I love you. <laughs> and she's, she's kind of diddling around. I said, Mary, look at me. I said, Look at me in the eyes. Look at me. I love you you. You know what she said? Your face looks like it's dirty. <laughs> Behold. <laughs> oh, my. See, what's it mean to know God? It, it, it means you feel his hug. What's going on here in Scripture? Behold, John is being hugged. He's being hugged. The truth gets radioactive. Listen to me. We, 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 we see this all the time in, in, our, in our culture and the things. Take the Christian understanding of the arts. You know, all the stories that we love, all the stories that move us, they're really about Jesus. The great thing about being a Christian is that every story is two stories. Every song is two songs. Have you noticed? Um, when I was in Philadelphia, I was in a, a little church called Tioga Heights Christian Church, and I pastored that church when I was in seminary, and they had me because they were a teeny little bitty church in inner city Philadelphia, Kensington area, which is a terrible area, and uh, they gave me the parsonage and $100 a week for three years, and so I pastored that church for three years, and I was with them, and they had a mountain of a guy. He was about six foot five. His name was Chucky Farrell. He was a, he was, he was a huge guy. And he was the choir director. Well, this church only had about 45 people in it. So he was the choir director. There were five people in the choir. And Chucky was the choir director. And he loved doing it. So Easter Sunday, I come into the church. I'm all set, man. I'm going I'm to go. I'm ready to go. And uh, the choir starts to sing. And it's like, go ahead. And it was the record of the Supremes. Ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you. And it was the Supremes singing. And the choir was singing with the record. 
And they turned that thing up, and they were all singing and going back and forth and singing. And I said to Chucky after, I said, Chucky, I said, what? what? It was great. You know, I said, what made you do that? He says, well, it was perfect for Easter. Death couldn't hold him. No mountain, no death, no, nothing could hold him. And I thought, that's right. See, so, so every song has a different meaning for Christians. We think about things different. Dionne Warwick, one of my favorite singers growing up, uh, what the world needs now is love, sweet love, not just for some, but for everyone. Two meanings. For a Christian, if we look at these things, think of it this way. We're going to fly like Peter Pan. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? You know beauty in the beast? The beast is dead, suddenly a light hits him, and he's transformed into this gorgeous prince. No Christian can look at that and not say, that's what's going to happen to me. That's what's going to happen to me. Beholding the Lord, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. Right here in verse 2, it says that to us, right? Beloved, we don't know what we're going to be, but we know we'll be like him because we shall see him as he is. We'll be transformed. There's a Superman who's coming from another planet into this world with supernatural powers. Don't you see? Every story is true. This is symbolic. This isn't fantasy. If you're a Christian, that's your future. One of these stories. One of these stories. Years ago, again, I was in Philadelphia, and I went to where I was in seminary. And so I was pastoring this church in the inner city. And so I'd have to go out to the Schuylkill Expressway, which they called the world's largest parking lot, go up the Schuylkill Expressway to City Line Avenue, go across, past, I'd go right past Villanova to the seminary, which was on City Line. And I'd make that drive in the morning to my first class, and I did that for five days a week. But before I did that in the morning, I would always pick up things around the house and do some things. And I, I, I always would put some music on while I was doing stuff. So I had a, a record player playing some music. And I had this music. This guy had written a song from Isaiah 53 where it talks about Jesus. And the song went like this. You know what it says in verse 11. And, and there it is there. That's the King James. And Jesus shall see the fruits of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The results of his suffering he shall see, and he'll be satisfied. I don't know what I was doing, but I wasn't having a quiet time now. I was diddling around. I wasn't even thinking about things like this. And all of a sudden, this song comes on, and I heard that, and I said to myself, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Jesus Christ suffered infinitely infinitely. He suffered at the depths that I will never, never understand or know about on the cross. Think of the infinite agony. Think of the infinite torture, the separation. What could be so satisfying and fulfilling and valuable to him that he would look at it and say, it's all worth it. The fruits of his labor are you. Fruits of his labor are me. Behold! <laughs> Blow my mind. Behold! Behold! In other words, I said, oh, wait a minute. My forgiveness, my healing, he looks at me and he's satisfied. He looks at me and he finds joy. Beard and all. 
And my brain starts to go crazy. I started not just knowing this. I had known this. I grew up in church. I grew up in church. I was there all the time. And I said, wait a minute. If this is true, why am I like I am? Why am I bored? Why am I unhappy? Why am I worried? Why am I mad? You see, the only thing you can do is just kneel down and thank God and praise God. This is the adventure of Christianity. This is the adventure of Christianity. Sometimes you have a quiet time in the morning and it just warms your heart a little bit. Other times it's like a tsunami. Boom! Right? It electrifies every part of you and you never forget it. You never forget it. Somebody says, well, how does that happen? Well, first of all, you begin with truth. Always begins with truth. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God, you begin with truth. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I'm, I'm the truth, follow me. Truth, Christ alone, we begin with the truth. So the first thing this great outburst shows us is what it means to know God is to have the truth, to know the truth. You know him, you belong to him through this truth. You're beholding him through these truths. The second mark is that you see God's love for you as a miracle. It's a miracle that God loves you. You say, how great, how great. Now, here we go again. This is the old King James that uses that. There says, in the King James says, behold, what manner of love. Then say how great, it says how, what manner of love. How great is the love, how what manner of a, there's a Greek word here that's used that, that they're translating as great. What manner of love? The problem is the word, it's, it's an idiom. It's an idiom. An idiom expresses uh, something that's hard to translate. For example, it's raining cats and dogs. Translate that into German. It's hard to translate into German. If Flo was here, maybe he could help us with this. It literally says, you say, say go to Germany and just say that. It's raining cats and dogs. They'll look on you and you're nuts. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? You have to find a parallel expression to meet this. It literally says, what this literally says in the, in, in the, in the Greek, behold, listen to me, what country does this love come from? What planet does this love come from? How off the scales, how unreal. That's what this is saying. Here, there's a movie called The Fisher King. I don't know if you saw years ago. And uh, Amanda Plummer plays this uh, glutzy, mousy wallflower, and she has no friends. And Robin Williams takes her out. And at the end of the day, he says, I want to talk to you. Why don't you come in for a little bit? And she says, no, uh, 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 I'm not coming in. Uh, if you got to know me, you won't like me. You won't like me. And I'm tired of rejection. It was nice to go out. Everybody who gets to know me doesn't like me, so no thanks. And Robin Williams says, and I'm quoting from the film, I do know you. I know you think you're awkward. I know you think you're clumsy. And you're kind of clumsy. But I want you to know that I know you are, and I know who you are, and I love you. And I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Sound familiar? And she looks at him, 
And it's as if she's looking at the heart of who she thought or what she thought was an enemy, and she sees understanding love. And she says, are you real? It's a miracle that you love me. Listen, a real Christian is a person who says, it's an absolute miracle that God loves me. It's a miracle that I'm a Christian. I don't know why. A real Christian is someone who sees everything comes as a gift. That you're totally in debt to God. There's a spirit of wonder that permeates your life all the time. You're always saying, how wonderful, how miraculous, how otherworldly, how unreal that God loves me. I'm a child of God. Me? Me? Incredible. Incredible. Unbelievable. That uh, you Nazarenes, you sing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. And his love shall ever be. Oh, how wonderful. But a moralist would say, well, you know, what good is all my religion? I try hard to be obedient. I try to do what I'm told to do. I, I try to do the good stuff. God owes me. I've been trying hard and my life's falling apart. But a Christian keeps the, the spirit of wonder. Wonder. A Christian says, my career hasn't gone too well. My love life, not too good. But it's astonishing. It's amazing that God is good to me. God is good to me. It's all grace. It's all grace. I went to a retirement party of, of a friend of mine about three, four weeks ago. I was up in uh, Grand Blanc. And I had a friend from a church that I served years ago uh, that uh, was there as well. And he came up to me. He says, you know, he says, I, I, I hear you're retiring and whatnot. He says, tell me, he says, of all the things that you've learned over the years, what, where do you, where do you, where do you, where do you come out? And I said, it's all grace. That's where I come out. It's all grace. The spirit of wonder, that sense of being a miracle, that sense of everything that comes to you is absolute mercy of God. It's the mercy of God. Christians to the degree that you behold the free grace of God to the degree that you meditate on it, let it become that holy fire that burns in your heart, to the degree you experience and behold the love of God, to the degree that you're going to find that in the difficulties of everyday life, you'll be able to say, my father must have a purpose here because he loves me so. We'll bring it down to our experience as a church together with Andy and Briella. God must have a purpose here. And what's the purpose? Look what's going on. Look at what's going on. Look at the people's lives that have been touched. God, my father must have a purpose here. You can handle anything. When good things come, you say, behold, what a miracle. The very fact that you can get up this morning and say, I'm a child of God. Who would have thought? I'm a child of God. There's a spirit of wonder about you. Here's Christianity in a nutshell. And can it be that I should gain 
an interest in my Savior's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Behold, <laughs> behold the results of his suffering. He sees and he's satisfied. Uh, sometimes I get to get slapped across the face and come back to Romans 8 and listen to it over and over. For I am persuaded. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Life is complicated, yes. Schedules are hectic. Things don't always go the way we want them to go. Following Jesus isn't always the easiest road. My prayer has always been, and always will be, that we together, the body of Christ, hear the crystal clear voice of Jesus whispering, I love you. I love you. I love you. And I pray that you hear that in your unfinishedness. That you hear that in your incompleteness and in your incompetence. In other words, in your mess. He's here. He's here. Arms open wide. And he's running to meet you. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the, the beauty of Scripture. Father, we ask that if it's possible for us to be visited by your Spirit so that we can love better, so that we can have the, the same outburst as John, that we can see the miracle of your love, we can sense that these, these truths overflow in, in our minds and into our hearts. We ask that you do that and make that possible through your Holy Spirit because your Son died for us. We pray this now and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.